Father, guide our thoughts, our hearts, our minds. Show us what we need to know. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Comfort us where we need to be comforted and transform our lives for Jesus' sake. Amen. The first reading is from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 to 31. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? Or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was, who was it that taught him knowledge? Or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is no, not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. 
The second reading comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 80. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled by the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come up to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John the Baptist, of course, foretold in Isaiah 40, which we looked at three weeks ago in our series. Looking forward to exploring this particular text to you now and uh, with you now and uh, seeing what the Lord has for us. Let me pray. God, give us strength. God, give us energy. Give us now your Holy Spirit that we may find our hope in you, that we might wait on you even in the suffering, and that we might do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Tiredness is a real thing, and you and I both know it. Now, not all of us. Some of us might be energised in the season, but I'd go out on a limb and say that most of us are exhausted a lot of the time. It is, after all, December 17, the end is in sight. For some of us, school has just ended and holidays are on the horizon. For some, exams are over and the marks are coming in. My daughter did the HSC and got a pretty good mark. She got a very good mark. There you go. Christmas parties, which are meant to be fun, are drawing to a close. If you are hosting Christmas and uh, that worries you, you're probably thinking about Boxing Day or maybe the day after. For some of us, there are several Christmas presents to still buy. The shopping centres are packed and the parking is atrocious. I can testify. Tiredness is a theme in Isaiah 40, our chapter through Advent, and it's right there at the beginning in verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, saith your God. But let's be clear, Israel's tiredness doesn't come from first world problems. Their context was sin and the just judgment of God. It was of suffering and exile, a sort of death itself. For us, tiredness can come from a number of sources. For example, lack of sleep, obviously. But where does lack of sleep come from? 
I thought of six things from my own experience. I'm not a doctor, I've not done the research. You could think of others. The 830 congregation gave me 10 more in a heartbeat. These things are often layered such that tiredness is exacerbated. First, a poor environment, a noisy bedroom, unfamiliarity, sweltering heat. This is why people can't stand sleeping in hospitals or motels. Maybe it's a fear of someone who's in the house. That's awful. Or maybe it's a fear for someone who isn't. It's 1am, is my teenager okay? Second, illness or some other stress on the body. This one's obvious, you're sick, recovering from, from an operation, and it hurts. As they say, the body keeps the score. Third, you worry about a particular situation. You can't slow your mind down. You've got too much happening up here. You think too much, you churn about what happened today. You're worried about what might happen tomorrow. Perhaps you feel alone. There are, of course, chemical things going on and imbalances associated with poor mental health, and these must be treated. Fourth, suffering keeps you up. You're deeply worried about the world, about the future, or someone you know and love is suffering, or maybe it's you who's suffering. In body, mind, or circumstance, at work or at home, Job suffered, and he famously said, Job 3 verse 27, I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Fifth, sin. You've been mistreated. Or you yourself have been caught in your own sin, and it hurts your soul. With all the guilt, keeps you up at night and maybe even with the concern that you have about how it affects others. Sixth, aging. Aging. <laughs> you used to be able to sleep, and now you're up all night, sometimes several times. You can't sleep past 5 a.m. while ironically nodding off during the day. Now, I know all of this is commonplace. I sleep poorly, little fact about me, always have. Since I was a child, a couple of years ago, I spent good money, although it was taxpayer money, thank you. I spent good money at the Wilcox Sleep Centre down on Glebe Point Road to try to work out what was going on with my sleep issues. I'll talk about that in a few moments' time. But some of you might be wondering, in all the suffering, if God notices or if he cares, if your cause is disregarded, by your God, or if he can do anything about it. For what it's worth, you are in good company. Jesus picks up the anguish of the psalmist, of King David, when he's on the cross, when he borrows Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why has my cause been disregarded by you? Jesus said that on the cross. In verse two, it says, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and I find no rest. There's a great prayer in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer that goes like this. Finally, we commend to thy fatherly goodness 
That's an act of faith right there. All those who in this, all those who in any ways are afflicted, distressed in mind, body, or estate, that it may please thee to comfort and relieve them according to their several necessities, giving them patience in their sufferings, and I love this, look at it, a happy issue out of all their afflictions. All this we beg for Jesus Christ, his sake, amen. Comfort, relief, patience, a happy issue out of all their afflictions. This, I believe, is a prayer for rest. Today we're going to, we're going to explore five verses of Isaiah 40 and its context. Isaiah 40, verses 27 through 31. This is the final in our Advent series on the whole chapter, a chapter that has tempo that rises to a crescendo of hope in the coming of our God, a highway for our God, a highway, I believe, that leads straight to Bethlehem, where he came in the first instance in great humility, but he will come again in glory in his glorious majesty, the judge of the living and the dead. will come to that. I do wonder whether Isaiah 40 could be summed up in this famous psalm, 121, a word to ancient Israel, I lift mine eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That's all there in Isaiah 40. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. He doesn't sleep. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. There are many ways in which being a human is similar to being divine. But this is not one of them. You sleep, he doesn't. Five things uh, to say today. One, the promise. Two, its context. Three, its meaning. Fourth, its fulfillment. And fifth, its application, if you're writing notes. The promise, its context, its meaning, its fulfillment in Jesus and the application to us now. So firstly, the promise is a promise of rest. Look at verse 28. Do you not know? You ought to know. Have you not heard? It's not a secret. It's been said since the beginning. What is it? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He's not one pagan god having a fight with another pagan god. That's all been dropped out by the glorious monotheistic truth that there is one God, not in competition. The ground of all being, the source of all that is. <clears throat> he will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. The truth is that even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Isaiah 40 verse 31 must be one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible and one of my favorites. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. God does not tire or get weary, and he shares that strength of the weak. I'll say that again. God does not grow tired or weary, and he shares that strength with the weak. That's what these verses are claiming. That's what the promise is embedded in this ancient claim. 
Verse 30 makes the point that even young people get tired too. Verse 31 tells you the set of people who receive this promise, namely those who hope in the Lord, or in the Hebrew, those who wait on the Lord. It's the same in the Hebrew. They will renew their strength and only they will renew their strength. Are you in that set? Or are you outside of that set, those who hope in the Lord? Verse 30 tells you the magnitude of the rest and energy that will come. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Dick Lucas, a pastor in St. Helens, Bishopsgate in London, points out that it goes from fast, wings on eagles, to, to slower, running, to the slowest of all, walking. And he has a thesis about why it seems reversed from what you would expect. This is the promise. Second, its context is ancient Israel's exile. This is important because if you remove this promise from its context, you'll misunderstand the verse. For example, you might think that human beings can fly like eagles. I can guarantee you right now, you will never fly like an eagle. So what's it mean? These verses are, the context is Israel's exile for her sin foretold in the covenant of Moses. If you disobey me, you'll go into exile, you'll be displaced by foreign powers, and I, the Lord, will drive it in justice and righteousness. Isaiah 1 through 39 is all about such sobering judgment, and in chapter 40, there's a turning point such that people believe there are two Isaiahs. Our church has been looking at that turning point through Advent. Isaiah 40 is a symphony of the promises of God rising to a crescendo of hope in the birth of Jesus. And it starts with comfort to my people, for God has dealt with their sin. And when, how does this happen? It happens when God shows up on a highway for our God. It's a metaphor, of course. For the arrival of God, the glory of the Lord being revealed to all flesh. And how will you know when this is happening? And the answer is when you hear a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. We know this voice is John the Baptist from our second reading, preparing the way for Jesus Christ. And what will you find out about God? He has two arms, not one, one with power. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with his mighty arm. And secondly, his tender arm, he tends the flock like a shepherd, he gathers the lambs in his arms, close to his heart, big and tender. This is the Christmas story, big and tender. John Donne, poet, I said this last week at the carol service, immensity, Mary, immensity, Mary, cloistered in thy dear womb. Behold your God. But you may struggle to believe this. You may not believe it, or you might not be sure. You might be like Israel in exile who said, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. This is the context of our text today. Israel, Jacob saying, God doesn't notice me. He doesn't notice us. He doesn't care. I've been abandoned. That's why I can't sleep. No one's got my back. Something ancient Israel clearly felt, and maybe you do too. 
Isaiah then gives the bigger context, bigger even than the exile, because the context really of this text is the immensity of God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? You should know this. It's obvious to anyone with eyes. God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are, in size, like grasshoppers. Does, does immensity notice the grasshopper? He stretches out the heavens like a canopy. He spreads them out like a tent to live in, all ancient cosmology for sure. But the point is, he is immensity. This is true in respect to the universe. It's a rhetorical question, but who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Hello, Pacific Oceans, swimming in my hand. Or with the breadth of his hand has marked off heavens, 93 billion light years. It's true in respect to knowledge. Again, rhetorical question. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Which mountaintop and guru did God uh, inquire of? Who, who was it that taught him knowledge and showed him the path of understanding? No one did. It's true in respect of the nations, which are a drop in the bucket, dust in the scales, the islands as though they were fine dust. And it's true in respect to despots. Good news, he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. He's that big, he is immensity, and so he is across it all. The immediate context of the promise is exile, but the ultimate context is God, immensity. As Rob Forsyth said in his sermon at 8.30 last week, your God is too small. Your God is too small. So thirdly, it's meaning. God is bigger than you think. I reckon a lot of us have our head down. We don't lift our eyes up to the heavens or the hills. We think we have what, I mean, even if they feel big, they perhaps, we think they're little problems and that perhaps God is a little God and maybe he can do a little good here and there. But, you know, in the end, I'll have to do the rest. The truth is we have big problems, huge, huge problems, personally and globally. And we need a big God to secure for us a big hope. And that big God, we're told here, notices me. He looks at little, tired, up all night, sinful me. My cause is regarded by my God. Look at the logic. Again, I raised this last week. The logic of Stephen Hawking, brilliant man, of course, the late... A great physicist, Stephen Hawking, is said to have said, we are such insignificant creatures on a minor planet among more than 100,000 million galaxies. So he said, it is difficult to believe in a God, small g, that would care about us or notice our existence. Interesting, by the way, it's not an argument, it's an assertion, and it's... Um, the key word there is the word so. The universe is big, so why would God notice? The crazy thing about such an assertion is that it is basically what pagan, ancient paganism is. Trying to get the gods to notice me because they're big and I'm small. 
There's a sadness in this quote. Also, Hawking assumes that a big God only notices big things, but how would he know that? What revelation did he get that from? The gospel of Jesus tells us that he notices you. Your way is not disregarded by God. And we find out he can lift you up. He can mount you up on eagle's wings, on eagle's wings. This is not new. Israel learnt it from Moses hundreds of years, a millennia before Isaiah 40, when Moses went up to God, Lord called to him from the mountain and said, tell the people of ancient Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, in the Exodus, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Something they weren't believing in exile. We disregarded compared to big bad Babylon. But in Isaiah 40, he's saying, I will do it again sometime in the future. I'll end the exile, carrying you on eagle's wings. You'll soar like wings on an eagle. Run, not grow weary, walk and not stumble towards the hope that you have, the promised land. Dick Lucas says it starts with something fast and then move to something slower and then something slower again. Wings on eagles, flying, running, walking. Dick Lucas posits that it ends where it ought to end, namely that for anybody suffering or tired or hurting, the key to it all is endurance. Fifth, its fulfillment is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope of one to come. In 587 BC, the Israelites were taken into exile in Babylon for her sin. That's the broad context of Isaiah 40 and of the book of Daniel, which we'll look at in February next year, ahead of our Rivendell weekend away. But 70 years later, the Israelites returned on foot not on eagles' wings, and they didn't really run back. It was a bit of a fizzer. It was heavy going. There was a lightness of hope, but you wouldn't be able to say that they were soaring on wings like eagles, or that they were running and not growing weary, or that they were walking and not be faint back to their land. They made it back, but it was a fizzer under the uh, uh, Medes and Persians, under the ancient Greeks, and indeed under the Romans, when Jesus burst on the scene and said, and said famously, come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, he said, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, two arms, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But Jesus said all of that before securing such a hope for the ultimate fulfillment of these verses comes in resurrection when you are lifted up as on wing, eagle's wings. For the ultimate exile is death itself. And the ultimate restoration is in resurrection. For Jesus had to take on the exile that is death, identifying with ancient Israel in order for him to rise as on the wings of eagles upon his father's power and love. And this is a promise that is given to the set of all those who wait on the Lord, who hope in the Lord. 
And the truth is you'll be tired now. You will be tired. You're probably tired right now. But you can have a hope that will ease the mind. You can have a hope that will grant you eventually true rest at his appearing when you shall receive all the comfort, all the energy that God has promised to those who wait. And so the application is to wait on the Lord, to hope in the Lord. Now, as I said earlier, I don't sleep. My mum thinks it's because I didn't breathe for the first eight minutes of my life. I was a twin. This child comes out, he's not breathing. According to my mother, they sort of shoved her aside to resuscitate me or to get me to breathe. I think they said to her, hold the second one in. 20 minutes between number one and number two. I got breathing and my mother believes that uh, I have a memory of that, my first memory of it. So I went to the Wilcox Centre down on Glee Point Road uh, to just see if I could sleep better. No, I sleep, but I just get up a lot. Have done for a long time. A couple of things that uh, the doctor said to me. She said, A, welcome to being 50. <laughs> welcome to being 50, she said. I said, but I had it when I was 20. <laughs> she said, B, you don't have a disorder. So none of this. Good news. C, she said, Avoid pills where possible. D, she said, essential oils, while nice, probably don't work. Just telling you what she said. E, she said, you must stop rewarding yourself with a pile of wheat bix and sugar at two o'clock in the morning as a snack. And lastly, she said, at night, don't turn the light on, look up at the ceiling and curl your toes into the carpet, which I do every second or third night, and I still sleep poorly. Thank you, taxpayer, for your lovely gift at the Wilcox Centre. <laughs> of course, there are things people can do to ameliorate bad sleep, and, and uh, they should do such things when they can. But I find that if someone is telling you that they have the cure-all for all tiredness, then usually they're trying to sell you something. However, the gospel of Jesus Christ gives even to tired people endurance and hope. See, it's for those who wait on the Lord, those who rest in him, hoping in him for the life he'll give. Bishop Ray Smith, who comes at 10.30, tells a story about his fellow bishop, not Robert Forsyth, another one. Lots of bishops around here. And Ray said that he went to Bishop John Reed, who was tired and ill from, I think, some maybe a cancer scare, and Ray asked him how he was. And Bishop Reed replied, I've got nothing that a good resurrection can't solve. I have nothing that a good resurrection can't solve. Cheeky, but correct. This, of course, is embedded in the ancient Advent prayer that will say in a moment's time that Jesus Christ came in the first instance in great humility, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb, a baby in a manger, a life of a carpenter, that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise as on eagle's wings. We may rise to the life immortal. This is our ultimate rest while we wait now, sleeping or not sleeping, 
resting in salvation. Let us pray. Father, give to us rest. For some of us, sleep, good sleep in the first instance. Perhaps even tonight you might hear this simple prayer for those who battle to sleep, the gift of a good night's sleep. But for all of us, Father, whether that prayer is granted or not, we ask you to give us the rest that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. May we rest in him, in his power and strength, his energy. May we rest in Christ, ultimately looking forward to the resurrection when we will rise as on eagle's wings. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.